You want quality to be evaluated from the look and feel of it, not a score of 1 to 10. I heard this idea when I was preparing for my interview with Sankeshwari Deo, who works as a linguistic quality manager at Autodesk. And yes, I finished the preparation, we did the interview, and you're about to hear it very soon. As you can expect, the focus of our conversation was quality management. Going back to Sankeshwari's quote that a score of 1 to 10 is not enough, you learn what more does Autodesk do in terms of quality management. We talk about how the feedback gets analyzed, the concept of self-certification, how to do root cause analysis on quality issues, and how to close the gap. If you're just starting out with quality management program, you'll also get tips on what should be your first steps to set it up. Talking about quality management with Sankashwari was a lot of fun for me, and I hope you'll enjoy it as well. It's a great pleasure to have you here, Sankashwari. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Andre. Great to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you? I'm pretty good, pretty good. It was a long day for me. Pretty good news, also some sad news, but that's life. (laughs) Where are you right now? You're in Singapore, right? So I'm in Singapore, yes. It's a hot, bright, sunny day. (laughs) (laughs) Are you guys still on the lockdown or did the situation get worse? No, it got better in a way. Like we can still go out. We can now go out and just, you know, as long as we wear a mask. So it's not too bad. But the numbers are still going up. Uh, It's it's mostly like the dormitory areas and all of that. But outside, I think it's quite safe to go out and enjoy a meal, meet your friends, as long as you're in groups of five. Okay, that's the maximum limit. Yeah, yes. (laughs) So how did you end up in Singapore? I used to live there as well. And I think mm-hmm. maybe our reason why we got to Singapore is quite similar. Was it because of the job that you have right now? Yes, I did move here for a job and I had no idea about Singapore. I had not come here for any holidays. It was just like kind of crazy, uh, I wouldn't say a whim, but yes, it was one crazy day I decided, well, I want to work in Asia, you know, outside of India. And so I decided to move here. And now you're working for Autodesk, right? That's right, That's yes. That's what we have in common. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so until we get there, so this interview will focus on quality management. That's mm-hmm. your current lo- role, linguistic quality manager at Autodesk. So let's start from the very early days. Uh, curious, notorious question, how did you get into localization in the first place? Okay, so a bit by accident, because I didn't know what localization was. I definitely knew, you know, basic translation, and I was always, uh, you know, passionate about languages. I was learning French, just learning Spanish at a given school and college at Alliance, and, you know, just continued studying at the embassies and consulates that were offering classes in India. And um used to do part-time translations, and somehow got into, like, a freelance, uh, you know, small... Uh, project at Lionbridge because they were doing some e-learning courses and they wanted me to validate it. And yeah, that's that's how it started. So I didn't even know it was called localization back then. And then, you know, after after that month got over, they said, oh, you know, this, this seems good. So would you like to like uh, try out something, you know, maybe a full-time role? And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure I'm looking at being a part-time translator because <laughs> I was also doing my master's in economics. And, you know, I was more about like... The, two very uh, different fields. So I said, oh, let me think about it. And then I, I tried to figure and, you know, ask around what's localization and people in India back then were like, 
no idea because it was not a very common field of work and translation too wasn't like a you know mainstream career option but there were still translators so i think it was just like a yes let me give this a shot this is something new cool i love languages and it just started from there so it was a very accidental um you know, jump into localization to then learn about localization after getting there. And I started off actually as a language quality manager too. So yeah, it was uh, it was very interesting because I applied that knowledge and I got a lot of, uh, you know, trainings, a lot of um, knowledge sharing from the teams that existed. It was the, this was in the France office. So it was like a whole, you know, meeting with a new team, new culture, new country. It was it was like a fantastic experience. And that was like the moment like, aha, yes, I think localization <laughs> is cool. And I should really make that as my career. So that, that's how I got into it. And that was really your first job? Yeah, it was. <laughs> Quality management? Was it with Landbridge? It was with Landbridge. So how would you compare the quality management on the vendor side or like when you first started and now that you do on the client side so many years later? <laughs> so many years later, <laughs> it's it's like pulled apart, you know, like with language, it was, it was more, it was a quality management. It was also like managing language leads and, you know, overseeing all the linguistic part of it. And back then, like I said, you know, localization wasn't like a big thing in India. So when we worked on localization quality, it was also trying to just provide what the client wanted. There was no input, like no proactive, oh, you know, I could do this. Like today, if, if I just jump into something, I know exactly what I want. And back then it was like, oh, you know, they want it this way. So I need to deliver this. It was just purely meeting expectations. And it was like a backward process where okay, this is what you want. And then you're going to deliver not knowing like to get there what you need to do. So yeah, it's it's really come a long way. Apart from the basic things like, you know, you have style, tone, and you adhere to all of that. But yeah, most of the things are, I would say, I, I would never imagine working um, in that same way that I did about 15 years ago. <laughs> yeah. And then apply all of that today. Like, I don't apply any of that today. Honestly, right. yeah. Do you think it's because it's outdated or? The basics are pretty much the same, you know, how how you would go about it, but how you approach it from a more, um, you know, holistic view is, is now, right? Then it, I mean, I was so young and it was like, oh, wow, this is cool. So let's approach this or, you know, this, this company is doing this. And there wasn't even that much knowledge of, you know, what, Yes, of course, there's the vendor and the buyer side, you understand that, but you really do everything to please the client and you just go with what they say versus now, you know, after all these years and having the experiences working on both client and buyer side, you can approach saying, oh, you know what, I think this is probably not the best approach for you. So making that decision and, you know, being courageous enough to say, I know that this works for you, even though you feel that, you know, you want something else and trying to take that risk to show them how that is the best fit. I think that's that's something uh, I wouldn't do 15 years ago and that's come a long way. But of course, you know, basing these decisions on something that I've learned 15 years ago still stays. So I, it, it's like being a journey, but yeah, I would say it's it's not outdated completely, but yeah, some parts of it definitely are. That's, that's what I got as well on my journey when I was working at Autodesk. Mm -hmm. is that more holistic view like when you like, zoom out and you understand the 
other stakeholders that are involved in the localization. So you not only care about your immediate client, which could be, let's say, the, the project manager or program manager on the client side, but you also start to understand more about the end users mm-hmm. and you care about them and you try to move the relationship to more like, okay, like you're not just my client, but we are working on this together and we are doing it for the end users and not mm-hmm. just for the transaction, right? Yes. Yes, right. Absolutely. What I what I like what you said is that you know what you want. So what exactly <laughs> does that mean when it comes to quality management? So for for me, okay, quality management definitely means not just putting what you feel is right. Because a lot of times we feel, oh, this works best for a certain market or a certain language. But when it comes to, you know, like you said about the end user, it is eventually about the customer experience, whether it is internal or external. And when you're trying to deliver that, you can't be very rigid about, I feel this is, you know, linguistic quality or a certain framework says that I have to have, you know, this quality uh, deliverable or a certain score. And you really have to understand what is your audience, what where is it going to be used, what is it that they want out of it, and then you try to build or modify or you know just massage a little bit so it it fits for that audience. That to me is linguistic quality, and I've always been an advocate of you know uh, saying that don't just judge everything very uh, rigidly by oh I think this is like a fantastic four or this is like. Oh, this is really a poor quality one rating translation because it's, it's a very personal thing, you know, how, and we are all people, right? Like humans have this tendency where if, if I, I'm a, a person who is very critical of things, I would say, Oh, I don't think this is like the best, but maybe for my audience, it is the best. It's, it's just right. my personal view there. So yeah, I always say that, you know, try to approach something from a more broader, um, audience mindset rather than just you know trying to fit it in the boxes that you have checked for your uh, quality standards Mm -hmm. so from what you're saying my understanding is that we should not make quality subjective to us to our personality and our views but rather look at multiple people and how they look at the quality and what the quality means for them but you still probably need to get some quality evaluation from each of them and maybe then you average them or how does it work in practice what you just shared so i you know and this is more of a recent development over the last year or two at the most so what what i'm trying to do is right now and it's it's not something that i created this is like practice at Autodesk, uh, and it's not something that I've seen with other companies that I've worked with, is where we just don't work on a numeric score. We also try to attach a value to it, which would give you an overall feel of the translation. So there are attributes that you would rate a quality of translation based on, um, you know, how is the overall feel of it? And, you know, in terms of creativity, in terms of the overall understanding level, you know, what is the fluency? And this is separate from you know the basic LQA uh, or the um, audit forms that we run. So keeping that in mind, I think when we go through that and people rate, probably let's say I would maybe on a rating of one to five for a quality score. If you know my passing is probably a three point five, and on a very um, 
how would I say, on a more concrete scoring basis, I would say that I would give it like a four. But actually, you know, when you ask me, oh, how do you feel about it? I say, oh, it, it was great. Like, you know, I probably made some few changes, which is maybe grammar, punctuation, or one and two terminology. And I, I think this was really good. It's, it's my overall feedback. But that doesn't really translate into how you have rated a translation. So then, you know, trying to understand why did you give that maybe a 3.5 and you are saying that it was good and you could have easily given it like a 4 or 4.5. So trying to understand understand that gap and that is where this part comes in where you get the overall um you know um, feeling or the overall um feedback on what a person feels about the translation and then trying to also get some comments and analyze it to see okay you know this is what the person feels so these are the target areas i need to focus which i cannot capture on the very concrete basis of one two three four right okay we need to get to the bottom of this, or at least I need to get to the bottom of this. I remember when I was there, I think Autodesk was using the standard Lisa model or something like that, <clears throat> where you typically have a reviewer who goes through the uh, through the text that was translated. They record the errors. They categorize, was this minor? Was it major? Was it critical? And then in the end, you get a score, right? Mm -hmm. So that's the basis. And then... What I understand is that after they finish this rigorous part, then they give their feeling of the translation, right? Mm -hmm. And then you right. see, then you try to identify the gap. How exactly do you analyze this feedback from the, review, the, from the reviewers? Is there any systematic way how they uh, comment the gap and how should the gap be closed or how they feel about their feeling? <laughs> or, or how does it work? So, yes, um, the gap closing part happens when they do comment, whether it is, uh, you know, a third party reviewer, we have some internal ones, which share some feedback in term, in the form of comments. And then analyzing that comments and then trying to tally that with the score or with the overall uh, feedback they've shared within a specific document is, is something that I do. It's not, it's not left to either a reviewer or probably, you know, some translator who's working on that content because it has to be a neutral party trying to share the feedback. So that's, that's where I come in. And there is a framework that is created for that. It, actually tells you that, you know, if, if you have like, uh, these number of changes or this is the feedback, uh, in the non, uh, numeric value sense, then how does it, uh, help or, you know, how would you then go about breaching, uh, sorry, by bridging that gap between that minor 0.5 or, you know, one score and then get it to the next level? Um, I, I just cannot share too much about it, right. uh, you know, here, but <laughs> I, I do work very closely with the, um, vendor team or the contacts and then I try to understand from them that you know if if they have received a specific scoring and this is the feedback I check with them from purely the uh, linguistic specialist or you know a lead language uh, translator to understand if they had translated it this way would it really have changed and that is also something that I try to discuss with either the stakeholders or the reviewers to understand do you really feel that this makes that difference does this really take it from you know like um 
great quality to like an excellent one or is it just like trying to uh, make a more preferential change and approach to to probably helping uh you know it more relatable to the audience but then still does not mean that it's overall bad so it's just trying to be like a mediator between two parties but at the same time trying to uh, make sure that you know you're delivering the expectation that fits into the framework that is created so it's a very customized framework created for uh, like a specific content type uh, drilling down to literally like even asset levels in some cases depending mm-hmm. on what is the visibility to the customers and that's something that i've worked on for almost a year and tried wow. to come up with that yeah you mentioned the content type mm-hmm. uh, is this framework being used for the most sensitive and the most visible content type like marketing or what kind of frameworks do you use for different types of content so it's used across all content i mean it could be uh, products or software uh, documentation marketing it could be knowledge base articles it could be anything that goes out to the customers like corporate communications or even legal content there is like uh you know, a whole dissection uh, that happens and then you figure how many uh, different types of content that we translate, what would be the audiences for that. Sometimes it's like a mix of two content types within a certain asset or within maybe a certain website page that we're working on. So trying to see, you know, what applies for that uh, particular content and what would be the best way to then evaluate the quality based on the types and the framework that we would apply to it. So does it mean that you have a different is it like expectation level or for each content type? Like you use yes. the same framework, but you have different I don't know, acceptance levels for each content type? Yes, pretty much. And then there is a customization depending on, you know, if it's a very new content type or we really want to make it high visibility, or we try to treat that to make it, uh, you know, bring about that... Uh, result and then we can we would be able to evaluate that really this works for us and sometimes if you get like really brilliant results then you know it's time to think oh is that really too lenient do we need (laughs) to tweak it to yeah try to figure out maybe more issues to improve so yeah there is always like a lot of adjustment that goes on a lot of customization but essentially it's a very robust framework that is created to fit for at least like uh, 50 content types i would say today Mm. Is the analysis still manual? Do you have to do it on your own or do you have it somehow automated? So it's it's a bit of both. And I would say uh, definitely there is human touch points involved where people help to evaluate in terms of uh, the linguistic quality. But then it goes into the analysis part. And then that's, you know, based on a little bit of uh, AI, a little bit of uh, automation. So that's that's the part I would say I'm very excited about. Oh, and nice. it's also a little bit new to me because <laughs> um, that's something that I am currently working on. And uh, it's, it's also like an area of interest, a new area of interest that developed over over the last couple of months. And now that, you know, there is time to explore more and more, there's more ideas coming up every now and then. But yeah, that's that's how the analysis part is going right now. I would say I'm not really there yet. It's still a long way to go where I would want to reach a point where I don't really need to sit down. I would get everything. And then I say like, okay, I would probably want to deep dive into this. But at this point, I would say it's still a bit of human plus uh, machine. Are you using some commercial solutions or is this internal development? 
Ice internal development. Of course. (laughs) 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 One thing that we were talking about is that how the end user perceives the quality and how that is important so that we don't only give the power to only a few individuals in the process. Mm -hmm. So, so far, I got the understanding that we are talking mainly about reviewers that are working with Autodesk and they give this analysis, they give the comments, they give the sentiment, how they feel about the quality. Mm -hmm. But how do you get the feedback from the end users and how do you work with that? So I work very closely across, you know, teams and it's, it's not specific to my current role. I've always been that sort of person who knew from the very beginning, uh, that, you know, because I started, like I said, it was, it was like a reverse learning. I, I went into localization and then I tried to like, oh, this is how you need to please a client. And then you learn, oh, this is what you can do. So I knew that, you know, the end goal is to make sure that the audience is happy with it. So reaching out to audience for feedback is something I proactively do, uh, and I always have done. So what, how I do it is either reach out to, you know, internal stakeholders. It could be, you know, anybody in the, um, country offices. It could be marketing teams, product teams. And part of it is to understand, you know, what is not just, um, their expectation, but also when they reach out to people, when they go out to the market and they reach to customers, what are the customers saying about this? And then, you know, there's always a lot of initiatives that go on as part of feedbacks and surveys where you hear for customers and then customers say, oh, you know, I, I, I think this is like fantastic, or I see this kind of an improvement, or I probably am not very clear about this specific area, or I don't know how to execute certain things when I go to this page or, you know, when I'm working on a certain, um, I don't know, document or instruction manual. And then you try to understand, okay, this is the problem. How do I then go and solve it? But uh, the key is to ensure that you don't lose any of the feedback. You're always, um, you know, trying to get that. You connect with people. You're always establishing that relationship with people, even when it's not about feedback. But you try to constantly build that over a period of time. And that's where, like, the whole um, networking and engaging part comes into the picture because that's the only way. Uh, there is no way that in any of the roles that I've done, I have reached out directly to the end user or a customer saying, oh, how do you feel about that? It, it, it's really rare unless, you know, you're at a conference and you meet a customer and you walk up and you say, oh, this is what I do. And it, it has happened. I, I'm not saying it hasn't, but that's that's a very limited window. And, you know, once you're out of that five minute chat with a person and, you know, the person is a customer shares, oh, this is like, uh, you know, I feel fantastic or I'm very happy reading and I'm like bilingual and I've seen your pages in uh, these two languages. And and then you walk out of there and happy and say, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy that, you know, the end goal has been achieved. But then that that is a very rare phenomenon. You don't really, you know, run into customers uh, to get the feedback. But yeah, we try to uh, either um, I would say team up or you know uh, collaborate with people who could share that feedback, and then we can implement uh, all of the, uh, well, not really all, but most of it to try and uh, get the quality levels up. I've had once experience at Autodesk mm-hmm. getting a feedback from someone from the customer support. Mm-hmm. Is that one of the teams that can give you the feedback or is it is it actually something is this feedback sharing happening systematically or is it only if something really bad happens? 
No, I think I think it happens like all the time. In fact, I also run initiatives where I try to proactively reach to people to just get feedback. You know, it, it's not whether it's just good or bad. It's just feedback. So uh, I wouldn't say like it's it's always fantastic, but I don't think it's it's been at least as far as I know so bad that you have to be like, oh, my God, that's alarming. So, yeah. But yeah, it's, it's both. It's it's positive and negative. And is there any way for the users when they're, let's say, browsing the site to maybe give a thumbs up or thumbs down? Or how do the other teams collect the feedback about your work? You mean just specific to localization? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, there, there is, there is a way, there is a place where they can just share feedback in general. Uh, not like, I mean, I'm not sure about the thumbs up and down part, but yes, they could, they could share like what they feel and they could say like, you know, I would probably like to see a certain area improved, uh, because it's not very clear or I'm not sure how to navigate to a specific page with the instructions available. Yes, that, that is possible, uh, for them. And they could say that it is specific to, uh, you know, this part in Chinese or Japanese or Russian uh, that would then uh, be analyzed, whether it is really localization, whether it is like a globalization, whether it's a software development issue. So that that would then be further analyzed. But there is a way for all the customers to share feedback. Sure. So you mentioned the country offices. Mm -hmm. I know that was one of the big challenges working at Autodesk, <laughs> getting the feedback, especially from the Japanese office. That's the most trickiest one. So how do you how do you communicate with them? How mm -hmm. do you get their feedback? And how do you maybe connect them with the people who are actually doing the translations so that these two parties are on the same page? Okay, so you know like I so far like with all the years and everywhere I've worked I've had like a great relationship with country office uh, contacts because I know that they are the final decision makers. They are people who help. They're people, you know, who can really uh, go a long way to m help you even make decisions in in areas that they are not really, um, you know, the decision makers because they would tell you, yes, this works. And then sometimes you will depend on them and you will rely on them uh, as your partners to help with that. So I've always kept that relationship going. I think, uh, you know, it, it does take a lot of time and effort to establish that, to keep that running. Um, I have touched with, not had any problems trying to get, you know, help from anybody, like any any of the country teams ever. And it's it's really, you know, fantastic uh, to just go approach them, share the problems and, and get them to help you. And sometimes, you know, if it's out of their area, they always put you uh, through some other contact who would be able to help. So yeah, I think country office wise, it's, it's really not a problem. And, and they're always also helpful in terms of working very closely with us. So there are times where, you know, you need to work with translators and you may not have enough knowledge about a specific uh, topic. And maybe it's very specific to the content that is only privy to internal people. And then, you know, subject to the NDAs and, you know, all the agreements and legally what is possible, uh, people do reach uh, tend to reach out and help and you know maybe I set up meetings sometimes to help them understand a little bit more so they can then understand learn and then replicate that in the work that they do so it, it definitely helps one is bring better quality because that gives them a better understanding after meeting with somebody uh, either a subject matter expert or somebody who's 
even though a translator is local, sometimes, you know, it makes that difference to really sit down with somebody over a quick 30 minute chat yes. and understand, you know, yes. what? Yeah. So that really does make a difference. And fortunately, that's, that's worked for me. I've not had any problems with the country <laughs> office. <laughs> that's good for you. Yeah. Um, I had a question where I lost it. Oh, yeah. I was, I was wondering if the, people in the country office, if they are mm -hmm. actually part of the standard localization process or when do they actually interact with you? It's really on a case-to-case -case basis. It depends. Not, not, not something that is like said in the workflow because like I said, you know, the, the framework that we have in process caters to everything and it does already consider all the possibilities, all the levels that we would need to deliver a good quality translation. So if there is a need, they're consulted. If, if we are already, you know, able to deliver without any issues and questions and there's no need to involve somebody because they're not they're not part of the localization workflow right country office all the time but they are people who would be our partners when we need to engage them for any advice or any help or any queries for that matter so it's it's really on a you know do you really need to consult basis one of the main things that I remember, it was a new initiative when I was leaving Autodesk, and that was self-certification of vendors. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if it's still going on and how it's working for you, because to me, it was something quite revolutionary. I have never experienced it anywhere else that the client would put so much trust into the vendors to judge their own quality. So I'm wondering, what is your experience with that? Is it still running? What are your results? Uh, no, I would say it's, it's not the same process anymore. Okay. So <laughs> it, it changed. It changed a while ago. And uh, I, I mean, for me, because I came from a place where I've, I've always worked on both sides and I knew, uh, you know, what was the best approach to it. It's, it's something that um, I would say doesn't always work because at the end of the day, we know it could be the same resource pool. It could be, you know, uh, probably even the same people. And so it is important to have like a special uh, or a dedicated person trying to value evaluate quality so it's not the same same people trying to rate the translations and then I, I thought it was very important and we we definitely uh, retired that process a long time ago I, I don't I don't think it's the best approach I think it's important <laughs> to have a third party involvement right so you basically think, went to the previous model right I think that was there before self-certification Oh, we, we still do self-certification. I think oh, it's do? quite an important part. Oh. Yes, we do. We still do, but we, we do also have a uh, you know, process where we evaluate on top of the self-certifications. Mm -hmm. I, I would say like self-certification is important because that's just them, you know, the translators trying to tell you that this is uh, the quality that you expect and it's ready to go. Uh, but yes, it, it we have to always ensure, you know, from a linguistic quality perspective that we keep a check on that. We're not just depending on somebody telling you, yes, this is like fantastic. So yes, we do have audits and things in place. And I think that's pretty much like a part of um, the whole process uh, in terms of linguistic quality evaluation. And I've always even done that on the vendor side. Like if, if even within like the same vendor company that I work with, I would have like a different team of people review the 
quality whenever it was possible, probably like a different country office, uh, even, you know, when it's not the client um, part of it, it's still vendor, but have their feedback because, yeah, you, you, you just learn a lot more things that you would have never imagined when you get that uh, quality result when some other person puts their set of eyes into it. So, yeah, I definitely advocate having a neutral party. Right. <laughs> right. I'm wondering in your extensive experience, when you joined Autodesk, uh, Autodesk localization model is pretty mature. So I'm wondering how you would approach quality management if the company was just starting with localization. What would you focus on first? Well, if uh, it, it is definitely, I think it's definitely more mature and uh, I wouldn't really, uh, I mean, when I started, it was already strong. So it wasn't like, oh, you know, it's it's not, somebody was managing it before. Uh, I did whatever work I've done so far is building on that. It's not trying to do something from scratch. So mm-hmm. yeah, I would say it's it's pretty robust. And if I was starting off and it didn't have anything at all, I mean, yeah, I would definitely start with quality ratings and evaluations, trying to run several audits, check the quality, um, get feedback from, you know, country offices, customers, anybody I could reach out to basically. And I would definitely put in place, like, if, if at all, like, this is like a company we talk about with no linguistic uh, quality expertise at all. I would, I would say, like, go to style guides, reference materials, focus on that, you know, tone of voice, what works best for what content. I, I don't think, um, you know, it would make sense to just, uh, run audits and say, okay, this is what our quality is and that works. I think there is a lot more that goes into quality management and it's not always on the client side. There's a lot that happens on the vendor side because you need to make sure that the people who work on those translations are continuously educated about the things that are happening, share with them, you know, these are new products or this is new content. This is new. These are the new campaigns, how we would be able to brief them uh, whenever something comes in, you know, always ask them, like, is this enough for you? Uh, do you think the references that we provide help you, pro, you know, deliver better translations? Do you think the terminology that is shared is enough? And also, you know, opening up and letting them share, okay, I feel, you know, maybe we could change the process this way. And that is something um, I would say is very typical to Autodesk. I haven't seen that in any of the companies I work with. So I think, um, you know, yes, trusting the vendors is what you, what you shared earlier is, is important because, um, on, on the client side, what happens is people are too focused on delivering or, you know, achieving the goal of uh, good quality localization. Whereas on the vendor side, it is their job to deliver translations, to also, you know, maintain quality, to take care of all of that. And they would be the best uh, team to go to to say how is, you know, you can't just say, I need you to do a better job or, you know, I want you to improve on quality without understanding how they could get to that better place. So it, it, I would always, you know, uh, make sure that when I was starting off something with linguistic quality, I would work first with the core team who's actually delivering that and see, you know, what is it that they need to help me achieve something and maybe work well collaboratively with them to, uh, get all of that material built up. Because at the end of the day, uh, I might say that I want this and you need to get me that. But if I'm not going to help and work with you collectively, 
intuitively, you're never going to understand that vision and I'm not going to understand the style of work. So, yep, it's like work together hand in hand and deliver what's the best for the customers. Have you always had a good response to such an initiative from the vendor side? I know that many, many times the vendors can say that this is like an extra effort and maybe they even want to get paid for for this kind of like training or actually understanding what the quality means for the client. Have you ever struggled with this or was it always smooth for you? So I would say like um, in the in the different models that I've worked with, right? I mean, if, if I talk about uh, any of the other places, uh, maybe like I've worked at Cisco earlier, and then I've worked with another company where we uh, work very closely with clients. So we were uh, sitting at the client office and there, um, I would say it's not, it's not easy to just, you know, approach the vendor because the model was different from what I'm working on uh, currently at Autodesk. And, you know, people would say, oh, you know, I'm putting in two hours and I need to be paid for it. Or what I'm learning here is not going to be helping me with any of the other jobs that I do because it's very specific to your company. So yes, I have faced that challenge, but I think I've also, um, you know, learned over the last couple of years at Autodesk that vendors here of course, you know, with linguistic quality specific, I wouldn't be able to comment on the other areas you work on, but it's not, it doesn't take them a lot of time or learning, right? They are, they are translators, they're language leads, they're expert in the field. It's just about trying to, you know, see how we can bridge that gap or add something that would really enhance the quality. So those kind of trainings are not specific to, you know, just the content that they work on for a specific client. They also help the uh, person develop themselves. They also learn about industry rather than a specific product, and they could apply that elsewhere. So I, I wouldn't say that I have never run into that challenge, but I would say more recently, no, because it's also how you're approaching it. And really, if you are bringing some value to it, because you know, in turn, that's going to add value to you. And you can have that relationship and share that uh, with the vendors you work on. I think that they would be very welcome. And man, I always say like, oh, you need to pay me for that. So <laughs> that happens. And of course, we have vendor management to take right. care of all those conversations. So it's it's not really something I've, I've come across here specifically, but in the past, yes. And, you know, we always involve either business development or vendor management, depending on which company has what setup. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Greetings to Amish. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, you used to work as a tag, as a transcreation manager. So that's one of the interesting part of localization. I think it's kind of like new and like on the rise, all the creative translations. So I'm wondering how do you measure quality of creative translations? Can you still use the same framework? How does that work? So for creative translations, I would definitely not use the same framework. Part of it, yes, you know, just for basic punctuation, grammar, and all of that. But overall, I think it needs a special way of handling. So you have to see, you know, the um, the messaging 
is coming across from the source because when you work on creative uh, trans or basically trans creation it has to seem like it's written in that language and it's not just translated from somewhere so try to recreate that copy uh even if you know you try the best of the translators uh, it's not going to give you that result so i have to uh evaluate or i do evaluate it from point of an end user uh who's native and try to validate the copy based on you know reading English and reading that and then it's not about oh does it really say the same thing it's like if this talks about like a very you know wonderful afternoon and then this is like saying oh I did like 10 things you know so it's it, if it sounds like a list of just sharing or replicating that that's like bad quality so I, I would say like when I read that the way to evaluate is to ensure that if I'm a native speaker for let's say Spanish I want to feel like oh this is great and you know I don't even I can't even try to imagine what it seems like in English so you know like not that it comparing to like oh this is probably what English says in Spanish it's like oh this is really created for the audience and this is just like a website or a page or a campaign for Spain. And, uh, yeah, there is, there is a different, slightly different framework for that, which is built on top of the standard framework, uh, to judge all the overall, uh, concrete, uh, attributes that we have. So yes, that is there. And then there is also something that, uh, would specifically rate the creativity factor, uh, that is part of the transcreation. Mm -hmm. So again, like, sorry, I can't share too much of the detail, but yes, there is a framework and then there is like a, like a customized uh, level of, uh, I would say penalties or how we would rate that where depending on the kind of visibility also that is associated with that content. Yeah. Is this what you meant? I have quote here somewhere from some of your stuff that you put out there it says okay. you, you want quality to be evaluated from the look and feel of it sentiment analysis not scorecard one to ten mm -hmm. that's it right yes that's 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 pretty much it i i feel like you know when like like i said earlier when you try to rate it on a certain number numbers mean different things to different people and it is you know like i said you could you could be a very critical person and i could be you know somebody who's like yeah i'm i'm fine you know i totally get what this is talking about and i'm comfortable with it and maybe you know I, I, after a few days, I, I read something somewhere and I say, oh, you know what? I saw that and that is fantastic. So this is not good. So even like me not being a very critical person would then say, oh no, now I'm critical of this because I read something and I thought that was of a better quality. So I, I think to, you know, really understand, especially for, uh, non-technical, uh, content when you're working on rating quality, it is important to get that more human point of view because at the end of the day you're creating all of this content for people and people are reading it they're not going to say oh i like this translation because you know this page is like a perfect five or they're, they're not seeing that they're saying oh, i don't really understand you know what what exactly are they trying to communicate here so it's it's about how they feel and that is why i feel like that is something that is very important and we should always bring that up uh when we think of evaluating quality and um 
I would not say it's just for creative content. I would say it's even for, you know, sort of the documentation, which is not purely like telling you uh, a step-by-step guide, but just something that is describing uh, functionality. Mm-hmm. Also, if you if you read through something and it's really boring, you know, like oh, I don't really want to read it, even in a magazine. But whereas you're reading something, you know, it keeps you engaged. That that engagement part only comes from this feedback that you receive from people, and that is why that human, uh, you know, touch. Uh, human feedback or aspect to evaluating quality is what I really believe in. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Thank you. So on the other end of the spectrum, we have machine translation. <laughs> yes. So how has that evolved when it comes to the quality management with regards to MT? So personally, um, I would say like to me, I, I think MT is definitely great. I wouldn't say that MT applies or is the best option, especially when it's raw MT for every kind of content. But MT definitely helps, right? I mean, we are moving to a more evolved uh, world today. And, you know, it is important to try and automate things. So if MT is giving you that leverage to minimize time, effort, cost, all of that, it definitely helps as a process. Uh, would I rely on that? Like just take empty content, definitely not. But again, there are areas where we could. So I would say like, you know, um, just articles like telling you how to install something or, you know, just knowledge base, basically those kind of articles. I would say, yes, why not go with empty if you're sure that the quality of your uh, empty is really fantastic. And if it's creative Definitely. No, no. But if it's other content, I would say like, yes, you know, to go for empty and then post edit it because you need to always review the content that you're going to deliver. And there is the, the quality framework that goes on top of that. We try to make sure that it works and it's, it, it's always like going to help you, uh, deliver faster and better results as long as you keep a check on that. So it's the responsibility of the translator to make sure they post edit properly. And then, you know, for a quality manager perspective to keep checking and to keep sharing feedback to, it is very important to keep retraining the engines, no matter how fantastic it is, because content changes every day, right? We're getting so many new things and, I think context is also playing a very critical part. So just getting something turned out of the MT and say, oh, this works because it matches source and target doesn't always work. So yes, it's, it's definitely helpful, but don't, don't just use it unless you know that you totally agree with using a raw empty content for a specific uh, area or content type. But overall, I would say, yes, please, uh, evaluate, keep retraining and always, uh, you know, make sure that don't just put it if you're not sure it's great. Um, I've had like some examples in the past uh, where I was working uh, in one of the companies and, you know, there wasn't enough time and we had to get some translation done uh, overnight. So we reached out to a translator and said, you know, it's, it's like 20,000 words and, you know, can you get... <laughs> Yeah, it was crazy, but it was like, go to market. There is no way you can do this. Like 20,000 is crazy. So how many people can sit? You know, it's 24 hours. No, sorry, not overnight. It was 24 hours to go live and say, okay, we can get like, you know, 20 people and then we can help people work. Say, okay, how about the consistency? Because there's 20 different styles, you know, we don't know if those 20 people always work on that content. And they said, okay, let's, let's try. You know, we, we, we see how we can have uh, more people people who work on it, just review it to establish that consistency factor in style and all and say, okay, fine. 
Um, then it was ready, 24 hours, go live, it's up there on the page. And we realized like, oh my God, it was a disaster because it was all Google translated. <laughs> and 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 I, I, like eight years ago, Google Translate wasn't the most fantastic quality, right? And it was it was really bad MT. So um yeah, that's and and those were not even creative uh content or nothing that is very high visibility, but still uh, we got a lot of feedback and people started saying, oh, I'm, I'm not really sure, uh, you know, this talks about this. And it was it was completely, completely different. I mean, I think one was talking about um, a, a color and one was talking about glass and, you know, like it's it totally very, very uh, different context. So yeah, that, that is like a lesson learned that if you use MT, please keep retraining, please check context. And yeah, as much as you can um, keep, you know, reviewing, sharing feedback to improve, it's very good. How did you get out of that situation? Oh, we had to redo everything. So we had to ask for more time. And that meant like it, it was, oh, it was probably like 10 days of work to take it and then professionally translate because there was no way at that point we could use any sort of MT. Also, back then, MT wasn't like the big thing and people, not everybody was using it. So yeah, lesson learned. And that that is also one of the reasons when I started, you know, working more on MT content, I was always a bit, uh, you know, not, not very open to the fact that we should use MT. And I, I was very critical to that approach. And I said, uh, well, it's fine, but you know, don't use it for everything. But today, I think with all the developments that we have, and you know, how people continuously keep contributing, I, I would say like, it's come a long way. And I would definitely advocate for MT today to begin with as the first approach, and then, you know, review, evaluate and use it. I think many of the translators are afraid of their jobs because of MT. And since you witness how the MT quality has progressed, do you think that's something that's possible to happen in the future, that the quality will get to that point where we don't need a translator for many content types? So I actually had this conversation okay. last month at one of the lock lunches, and uh, yeah, we, we because there was a group of young translators, and they 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 definitely shared this concern. And um, what what I told them is, you see, MT is, you know, yes, it, it it's machine. It's gonna. Uh, maximize all the uh, time, uh, I mean, minim sorry, minimize all the time spent and maximize uh, your output. And it's going to just help you work more efficiently. I don't think like even the most fantastic of the empty quality is going to replace every uh, possibility uh, or area where a translator works. Some areas definitely, like I shared, you know, maybe articles or things which are not high visibility, yes. But we would always still need that. And you know, that again brings me to the point where I said, I need that human um, aspect to it, the feedback, because you are creating content for humans unless we reach a world where, you know, there is rarely any human interaction. It's like a very sci-fi world where you're not really reading and you just ask the robot. It's like, do this for me and, you know, tell me this and feed it to my brain. I mean, no, that's not going to happen. I, I do understand the concerns. And yes, maybe, you know, 
the the number of hours that they put in and in terms of you know uh what they were doing five years ago and what they would do in the next 10 years is definitely going to change or how they approach translations is going to change but it's also going to help them because they don't have to start from scratch i mean i remember i am when I started, it was like, like I said, there was no localization in India. And I have done translations, which are literally on a Word document to then, you know, moving on to the cat tools and, you know, all these translation management platforms. It's, it's really a long way. And I don't feel the translators, maybe then they felt threatened, like, oh, there's going to be a machine and it's going to show like, you know, two side by side translations. And do I really need to sit and do everything? Versus today, they are like, yeah, yeah, cat tool, of course, you need it. You can't work without it. Nobody's going to use a Word doc to translate today so yeah yeah i mean those threats of you know 10 15 20 years ago are like uh, some of the best things to happen to the industry and translators would say yes we love this but i think it's gonna be the same with empty it's just gonna help them work better but i don't think they're gonna just lose jobs or it's totally gonna ever replace uh, human interactions uh, in the work so i think veronique oskaya not sure if you know her she was a guest on the podcast as well and she i liked when she referred to empty as a productivity tool it's just yes. something that helps you be more efficient and that's exactly it. yeah, yeah. Okay. i totally agree <laughs> <laughs> one of the things that i also noted uh, about you is uh, about root cause analysis and that's one of one important things that you need to do when you have escalations about quality issues so i'm wondering if you and this is where we can go totally in depth so that people know how to do root cause analysis so how do you do root cause analysis for linguistic issues so i would say like for me so i'm, I'm not really doing it i mean it's it's the vendor side who would do that and for me, it would be like if if I received a bad feedback on a translation, I would first want them to, uh, you know, analyze that and share what were the areas that led to that. So while they're doing, because you already have the feedback, right? So you know that it was not good in terms of uh, either the messaging wasn't clear. It's not really um, clear in terms of there's no accuracy with the overall content. And then taking that uh, and then going back and say, you know what, I don't think the messaging is accurate or you've totally used a different style. I mean, your your style is very formal, but this is like a more more casual, more informal, uh, like, I don't know, some communication asset, let's say. So go back and say, are you using the right resources? Are you using the right terminology? Are you referencing the style guide? And if, you know, it's a yes to all of that, then say, okay, can you tell me what went wrong here? And this is the feedback. And then I want to see their analysis. Um, after I get the analysis, I would always, you know, set up a meeting and go through that with them and tell them whether I agree or not. And then, you know, if part of the... Uh, I would say the exercise is for them to learn something out of it. I would try to see if they're lacking that resource, if there's something I can provide. And another way I would, uh, or another step I would take in addition to that is take that feedback and reach out to the person who shared it and, you know, say that, okay, this is what we have come to in terms of our analysis. Do you agree with that? Do you think that if we fix these based on this, would it really help? And a lot of times, you know, it, we do realize that it is either due to lack of knowledge. And like I said, you know, when you launch a new product or you're working on things which are totally new, I mean, maybe it's like a, let's say like, like robots, for example, you know, it's, 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 it's a very, um, very, uh, 
high-end robot trying to do things uh, or maybe helping with medical research for that matter. And, you know, your translator is from a field that is uh, working on scientific and technical content, but they may not be the specialist in that specific area. So, you know, just trying to help them a little bit and also work with the um, user or the person who's sharing the feedback. I always try to bridge that gap. And I don't think that if, uh, you know, if I keep receiving that same issue over and over and if the RCA isn't helping, I, I would not uh, be doing the same process. At that point, I would be like, no, sorry, it's not working. And that's not the problem. We need to really go deep dive into the issue. So it's, I would say, probably like a two to three step process that I would approach. And I try to close it as early as possible, because, you know, the shorter you keep it, the better you have and lesser complaints you have. So but what would actually mean? How would it look like if you deep dived into something? Like when the vendor is saying, yes, yes, I will do this. And I've actually experienced that, that you tell them that this is an issue. Then they tell you, yes, we will do this, this, and this to resolve it. It looks fine on the paper, but in reality, they just don't deliver. They don't improve. Do you just work with vendor management or what does in-depth mean for you? So in-depth means I don't just rely on that root cause analysis. I always keep going back and I keep tracking it and I keep checking it until the point where I realize, okay, this has really improved and we don't face that issue. So I don't typically wait for somebody to come and say, oh, we have this problem again. I know once it's like analyzed for root cause, it is a problem and I will keep, you know, tracking that until it's no longer an issue over a period of time. I do also collaborate with the vendor management if it is not something that is improving over a period of time and then you know whatever is the course of action and you know as per the processes that they have is then executed but yes i will keep typically monitoring and i would say like over a course of one to two quarters to make sure we've really crossed that point yeah that's where the automation comes into place because it was all manual before but with all of that it, it helps you know because it is a lot of time investment and it's not that I'm always, uh, I would say, the expert in a specific language. And maybe I, I do know a few and, you know, I can go and approach or I would go to some people internally and ask, but it's, I couldn't do that with everything. So it is important that I make sure and I keep track of that. And this is going to help me, you know, set a reminder that, oh, you know, two months ago you had this, keep checking, is it happening? I really like that part, yeah, that you are very systematic about um, them fixing their performance issues. I mean, I've been a translator, Andrew, so <laughs> I've been through all of that. And, you know, it's, and that, that, that is something that I, I think, and I'm, I'm very happy about, like in terms of my career, I've always switched from when, you know, like vendor buyer, vendor buyer, alternately, because I want to like learn from the vendor side. I want to bring it to the buyer side. And I know after a few years, you know, I've, I've always heard, you know, vendors uh, or the project managers typically say, oh, wow, you work on the client side. It must be cool. Uh, yes, it is definitely cool, you know, but I would say like most of the learning comes on the vendor side. The other ones who are really using technology, trying to innovate 
from product side, I would say yes, the clients do, but that is for their own product. But if you think of localization as an industry, I would say it's always on the vendor side and there's so much to learn. So yes, these are things that I've learned. Some the hard way, like I said, you know, the translator overnight to any thousand word case. And I wasn't a translator, I was just managing it, but I have been in situations like that. And when I think of, you know, what I could have done or what is the guidance I would have wanted at that point of time as a translator who was either starting out or, you know, I wasn't a translator for many years, but yes, I would even today, like if I had to sit and translate something, say, oh, is it really good? How would I approach this? How do I evaluate my translation? So these thoughts come to mind and I definitely, you know, make sure that I apply them to any of the work that I'm, or any of the um, content that I'm reviewing. And I try to like discuss with the vendor parts you know, uh, partners and say, you know, this is what I think. What do you feel? Uh, there are times where they don't agree with a lot of things because, you know, it's not in their best interest. But uh, yes, I mean, I've, I've tried to share as much as I can and say like, you know, this is what you're going to get in the end. You know, if, if we if we work together and you spend like 10 hours today trying to learn this and improve this and perfect this, maybe like six months down the line, you might not need that. You probably need two hours because you already know what it is. You've learned that, you know, the process, you know, the style, all of it. So yeah, spend some time now because it's going to definitely help you in the future. And outside, like I said, you know, most of my work is not specific to a company or a client. It is general because it's it's for customers and for anything that you know is facing uh, end users and yeah i mean translators work with so many people and so much content i think it definitely helps to keep sharing that feedback yeah let's go to the basics speak about translators just just an off topic question well not that off topic but what do you think makes a good translator hmm I would say somebody who's definitely knowledgeable about the language is a native of the language or at least, you know, being part of that country for many years, understands the culture of the people, you know, understands the markets. And I think it's very important the translator is open to learning because there's so much happening every day and it's not, it's not, it, I mean, I feel you have to be an open person, right? If you're too close, like, Oftentimes we see where translators are a bit touchy about uh, receiving feedback and they don't like when you say that, you know, this is not good. And it's understandable. I mean, it's it's everybody, like all of us, when somebody tells you, I don't think, uh, you know, this is great or could you just work on it? You feel like, oh, I've put in so much of effort and it's, it's the same like with translators. In fact, they're not creating anything on their own unless it's transcreation. They're actually trying to copy uh, something that already exists and create that just for a different audience. So they don't always have that ability to, you know, think and just create. They're just trying to already put what's there into a different language. And so that's, you know, that limits a little bit of their creativity versus what they would do on a copywriting job or a transcreation. So I, I think that it's very important for them to be open to learning, to accepting feedback and, you know, applying all of that, um, like I said, in the native knowledge and the cultural aspects of it, because it, it helps uh, improve a translation, uh, you know, when they deliver versus something that they just say, okay, this is what I want to do. And I'm going to do this because I need to bring that into another language. So, yep, that's, that's what I would say. And, uh, 
it's it's important to always be in touch with what's happening in the industry uh to be connected to the right people especially if you're working you know maybe like in the field of translating the technical content you need to read articles you need to know about those products you can't suddenly jump into some uh field because you feel that as a translator you have the capabilities and you know the knowledge of the language that's not enough you also have to be a little bit if not like the best uh, subject matter expert to be able to work on uh, the content you talked about change and my question is how do you personally look for a change one of the things that i've noted down here is that you strive to continually expand knowledge and education in localization trends and news so how do you do that so that we can inspire people who are listening. You mentioned lock lunch. That would be a good start. Okay, yes, definitely. I think lock lunch is also one of the, well, I wouldn't say newest because it's been a year that I've been a part of it now. I think it was it was very interesting to be a part of something on that level because, uh, well, in, in Singapore, essentially, you know, it's a very small community for localization. And I have been here for almost six years now. And... I tried to reach out. So, you know, there were like meetup groups. There are just, uh, you know, subject matter experts in translation or a specific field and all of that. But when I tried to just see if I could be part of groups where I could contribute, learn, it was impossible for me to create something. Oh, sorry, to join something like that. And when I thought of, oh, how about I create something on my own and, you know, get people and I didn't really know a lot of people after moving here. So that that was a challenge. I mean, if probably I was in Europe, it would be a much easier way for me because I do have the contacts and I know people are more open to these kind of things versus in Asia, it's not so easy to get people to just join, you know, an event or come to an unknown um, gathering and say, oh, just, you know, network, meet people. Maybe in finance, it works a lot in Singapore because that's like the big industry here, but not not for localization. So uh, with Lock Lunch, I think I said, okay, that's a, that's a good challenge. Uh, it's also something that I'm very passionate about you know localization meeting people trying to learn new things how people are approaching it all all of the uh, newer processes and happenings in the industry so yeah that started last year of may and it's been fantastic like i i wouldn't have imagined uh to have uh, such a big group who's so dedicated every meetup that we have we at least have like six to seven people and it's a small number if you see but in terms of singapore it's pretty big uh, because uh, this is something that we do in the afternoon at lunch hour or once in a while you know over drinks where people come together they share about their experiences also how they got into localization what they do uh you know as part of their jobs because they're from they're either project managers business development and localization some are even um, you know, well, they're they're having like a full time role as a project manager, maybe, but they also are freelance translating on their own, and they have like their boutique transcreation uh, companies created. And well, we also have a few people join us every now and then who don't nothing about localization, but they just want to learn what it is because most people feel localization is about uh, well, and GPS. this is some. 
<laughs> yes, exactly. And it's it's very common in Singapore. I've never heard that anywhere outside, but people do feel that. And so we end up having people from different industries thinking this is, you know, like a place where you can meet up people and talk about that and say, oh, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm a very technical person. And I came here thinking this is going to be about GPS and it's not. So... Yeah, I mean, I try to tell them, okay, this is what it is. And then they, they get interested and they say, oh, we also do that at our company, but I don't know, it's called localization. Some even have in-house teams and they still don't know what localization <laughs> is. So it's it's very, very cool. And um, yeah, I, I, I think that opened up a lot of other opportunities, you know, like uh, one is also trying to be exposed to newer things that are happening because yes i do work with vendors and like i said you know i like to continuously learn in terms of what is the most latest in the industry from them or how we can improve but even on a personal level you know to see uh or to hear about other people's experiences how they got in here how they have built themselves or their careers and again you know this not being one of the main industries in singapore how do they survive and uh because smaller companies don't always last longer here especially the translation vendors and so you know how they've made that progress from either joining as a, you know an account manager then moving across business development they may be started their own companies or you know they got into another field but then came back to localization what brings them back what drives them so all of these are like really really very enriching conversations and uh, I think that that definitely helps me know what's happening in the industry and that is my gateway to industry news uh, specific to Singapore I would say and uh, apart from that uh, well because of this whole COVID situation I've been joining a lot of lock lunches online so that gives me perspective about more evolved markets I would say like somewhere in Europe or in the US where localization has been around for a long time and people are really invested, you know, they at every level, whether it's a translator, whether it is a requester or whether it is, you know, somebody even writing content like copywriters. So it's it's really good to hear that and then try to see, you know, how we could put that here. And so many challenges that come across in these conversations where people say, oh, you know, uh, I couldn't attend a specific conference. So Oh, why is it? Because they don't really cater for Asian time zones. It's always for either Europe, US, Canada. Um, sometimes Australia is able to make it, but not, not most parts of Asia. So yeah, you know, to, to hear all of that, uh, helps maybe even share some feedback with some of the organizers that, you know, could you do something in this time zone? And we would be able to, you know, love to attend all of these live. That's, that's part of it. So lock lunch, yes, has been uh, very played and a very important role in doing all of this for me. And have you attended any of the new online conferences? Oh, no, I haven't. This year, I haven't attended any. But I heard good stuff about the Lock World. Uh, Lock, Lock World? World? Uh, sorry, I forgot what. Worldwide, Lock Worldwide. Um, I, I saw some people post on LinkedIn. I, I thought it was very interesting. You know, they did the roundtables and, you know, they had actually people on um, video conferencing. It was, it was nice. Yeah, but I, I didn't get to attend any of that. I'm sure it was a good experience. Okay, so what is the other source of your learning? 
Yeah, so apart from that, I mean, it's definitely reading up a lot. So there's always CSA articles, you know, trying to um, read everything that is available on either the TAUS websites or anything that you come across through the gala articles uh, that are published. And I also, um, well, it's probably like six to seven months now, I'm following uh, uh N Natalie Kelly and all her um, articles. Articles, yes. <laughs> I think, and I think she's impressive. Like she's posting one yeah, to two articles yeah. daily. It's, 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 it's like, oh my god, <laughs> it's, it's unbelievable. It's, it's like, I, I can't even like get to reading one article a day. And by the time I'm like on LinkedIn, like, oh my god, there's another one, another <laughs> one. And it's, it's fantastic. I mean, and I would say like. Especially in, you know, uh, specifically related to her articles. They're very, they're very true. They're very real. They're very like what's happening. They're not, they're not sugar coated. It's really, you get what is really happening yeah, here. Yeah. And I just love her writing style. I think even, um, you know, compared to the normal reading that I used to do earlier, uh, just maybe like run a Google search, say, oh, I'm interested about this topic and read. I have now cut down and I'm really following that because that is like, I don't know, it probably take me like six to eight months to read most of the stuff that she's published just this year. Forget the ones before. So I think, yeah, I think that's, that's something I'm very, very hooked on to right now. But yeah, I do pretty much read all of that. And, um, I think access to conferences is also one of the ways I would like to, you know, continue when I have, uh, in terms of upgrading my knowledge about what's happening in the industry because you meet people and, um, uh, yeah. I mean, attending any of the look events online uh, that have uh, that I could have access to, and of course some podcasts. So uh, I do, I do also like uh, I heard about yours more recently when uh, you shared about you know you're working on podcast podcast. So I did listen to a few of them, and then I also um, listened to a podcast from Renato Beniato. So yeah, for for about a year or two, I've been uh, following his podcast too. So yeah, but the, I don't really, uh, you know, say that I dedicate a certain number of hours a week or a month learning. I think for me, it's just continuously whenever I have the time. Like oh, I heard this or I read this or you know, just go search about it and keep myself updated. <laughs> I'm I'm actually a one person team here right now at Autodesk, so it's not like you know there's always an opportunity to work uh, closely and discuss with people specific to linguistic quality. Uh, overall, yes, localization, there's like a big team and, you know, everybody's like open to sharing. It's very, it's very collaborative, very, very nice people. But uh, specific to linguistic quality, yes, I do rely a lot on um, people in the industry and try to learn from any of the resources available. And one of the good things that happened with that is I also uh, was part of a TM task force, which is part of the Guild Leaders Forum, but it's managed to a small task force, right? So we worked on the best practices for uh, TM management and uh, that was a good experience because again, that was going back to basics, you know, what I learned before because that's not what I'm um, working on at Autodesk, but then bringing that aspect of this is the best practice and this is what we're doing. So it's it's approaching it from both angles and then sharing it as part of that collaborative uh, effort. So yes, I try to, you know, find ways where I can learn and share and 
you make the best of both. <laughs> what, what was the initiative about? The TM management? It, it's about uh, the best practices. So, you know, because people were using uh, different TMs, how often do you clean up? Uh, what is, uh, yeah, what is your approach to using TMs? Do you have one per product, one per language? And then we had, uh, I think, many, many uh, companies uh, volunteer. So there were either, you know, globalization managers, there were localization managers, uh, not essentially from linguistic quality. Some of them were, yes, for sure. And then we shared, you know, how we were approaching this uh, within our organizations and how that would benefit others. So that was uh, that was something uh, of a very good experience. And then that also got me access to a lot more people, you know, and I'm, I am in touch with them. Um, I also am trying to currently uh, think of, you know, how I could set up something uh, for a linguistic quality management, like a small group where I meet up with people often and then, you know, they share and I share and we collaboratively come up with something like a best practices document. Wasn't out of this part of some localization council or something with other companies like Facebook, Apple, and they were sharing the localization practices? That's, 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 that's the same group. So it's the guild leaders, but that's like director and above are the leaders form. And then, you know, we are like small task force groups <laughs> Soldiers. who work on other areas. <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's the same group, yes, where people like from all the companies who use localization would contribute and share. So apart from localization, what are you curious about right now? Or if there's anything in localization, you can also mention that, but in general. In general, I'm just curious now. I'm not curious about localization right now. I'm just <laughs> curious about when is this coronavirus situation going to end? Like, it's just crazy, you know, so much of disruption. And I'm, I'm just also very curious because I'm reading a lot about it and, um, you know, trying to understand, like, yes, we, we know how it started and where it started. But is it ever going to end? Like, there's like second waves happening. And, you know, because I'm from India and I know like back home, it's a really bad state right now. So I'm also curious about why is it getting so crazy? Because it's one of the countries that actually had a very early lockdown. And yes, the population is large and all of that. But with so many people literally like not allowed to get out of their houses, how is it still spreading? What is happening? I'm, I'm very curious about when it's going to end, when things are going to at least get to maybe not the original state, but at least to a better state of normal than it is right now because it's it's really crazy and the more i read about it the more it I gets know. me curious and i think it's well it's a good thing and it's a bad thing it's a good yes. thing for my knowledge of grave it's a bad thing because i'm always like oh if this happened then this happened then this research says this and what about that and sometimes i feel like oh maybe i should get into a different field of work now because i'm reading so much about all this medical stuff so <laughs> That's what is getting me very curious right now to figure, you know, where and how is this going to end? Yeah. I was going to make a joke that since you like to switch from the vendor side to the client and then vendor and client, uh -huh. I think the next best fit probably for you would be Transperfect. Is Transperfect the one that has majority of their business in life sciences? Oh, yes. I heard about that. Yes, I think they do. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I know a lot of my ex-colleagues from Linebridge are at TransPerfect now. Right. Uh, yeah. But how did you get used to working from home with the lockdown? Was it easy for you or did you prefer working more from the office? I personally prefer working more from the office. Um, 
I would say the first few weeks were really challenging because it, I mean, in terms of focus, I wasn't able to, you know, give my hundred percent, but I think like about three weeks uh, into the lockdown, I was okay with it. Uh, what I terribly miss is though, you know, being in offices because I can interact with people, I can talk. I don't feel that same, you know, over a Zoom call, even though, you know, we have all of these catch, catch up and, you know, sync ups every now and then. We have like some lunches and it's very interesting, you know, people join and they share how they're going through with all of this situation. But yeah, for me personally, it's still, I would love to go back to office. Uh, right now, I am scared to go back to office with the situation, but whenever it's all okay, I, I would really prefer that. I'm not, I'm not somebody who can enjoy working in isolation. Uh, for a long time. Sometimes I like to do focus. Like there are days when I want to just work from home, even in a normal uh, situation before all of this virus started. But yeah, office is like the place. I like to talk to people one-on-one. <laughs> How did you learn to get rid of the distractions and be more focused when you started working from home? So first few days was obviously, you know, working on the dining table and then, you know, you're not in that environment so you feel like it's a day where you're just taking a day off and right. you're working on things uh, and then you're you know in the kitchen you walk around you're snacking you're doing all sorts of things and it's totally like taking the focus away so i think the first thing what i did was um, to just and i had no home office right because i've never worked out of home so it just like converted my extra bedroom into an office, like got a desk, got a chair. And I said, no, I have to have that environment. I think it's very important. I just, you know, enter like this is my office and I'm like coming in and I just, you know, decide that, okay, I'm going to be here. Um, and then I'm just going to get out for lunch and then step back again. Like it's my office. Uh, so that, that helped definitely focus. The bad part was also because I do know this is at the end of the day, my home, and I tend to like uh, be here at extended hours. So like I'm just in front of the computer and it's like, oh, I'm very comfortable because I'm at home. I don't have to travel. So I end up working really long hours because of that. I think that that was like something I had to learn to really cut down on. And mm -hmm. that was one of the effects of this work from home during coronavirus. Also, um, I don't take many breaks because uh, when I was at the dining table, it was all free and easy. But this is like locked in office, like self lockdown. You're locked so. within the lockdown, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I, I, I think that's that's something I still need to learn. I haven't gotten to that. And it's it's also a personality thing. I think I'm very bad at that. Like, I'm a very focused person when I do something. So... Even like when you're talking to me and if I'm really like engaged in it, I would probably like not hear anything. Like it's totally blanked out. So I'm very focused or I'm working on something and uh, <laughs> I can still multitask. So I can probably like talk to you, but I'm totally focused there. But if you're asking me like, you know, something, oh, uh, <laughs> what did you eat yesterday? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I'll be like, oh, what? No, I, I don't think I know what you're talking about. So that's, yeah, that that is something I need to really work on. And I've learned that about me. I've always known that, but I think I've literally like learned that over the last three to four months that that's something I need to work on to like, you know, get out of it after a while and 
take those breaks and separate the work and home thing. I think I have it the other way. I feel mm -hmm. like whenever I take a break, and I'm also learning to take breaks as well, but I feel like like when I take a break, I lose the whole momentum, like the thinking and when you're in the mode, like in the zone, like it's just work and just whatever, throw at me, I'll just do it one by one. Mm -hmm. And when you take a break, it's like, I feel like I'm getting more lazy. So I'm trying to be at least strategic with the breaks, like take them later in the day. So I try to start working with the most important things in the okay. morning. And that's also very new to me because to me, my habit is that I try to do the the small things and mm -hmm. try, I try to clean them up so that then I feel like, okay, now I finally have time to work on this big one thing. But usually when I get to this point, I'm like, I did so many things today, you know, and the big things are many times not urgent, but right. they are very important for your life. And then you just keep delaying yes. them and delaying them and delaying <laughs> them. So now I'm trying to start my day with the biggest thing. So when I complete it, I either zoom in, like zoom through the smaller task even faster than I would have normally. Because if I start with the smaller task, I feel like I am trying to perfect them, like give mm -hmm. them more input than they maybe deserve. Yeah. So this is what I'm learning as well. So this is the change that you have gone through recently when it comes to your habits and your behavior. But I'm curious if there's anything you change your mind about, like maybe let's say your worldview or your beliefs like throughout your life. Well, I wouldn't say change my mind about, but I think I, I have been more accepting. So, you know, like before I uh, moved to Singapore, I've, I've lived across a few countries on and off for work. And I always like thought moving every three to four years is the way to go because, well, it, <laughs> it's something that I have read. <laughs> like like many years ago probably still in college and it it was like it takes you four years like maximum of four years but two years is too short to learn about you know a place a culture a language really in depth to a level where you can say i know this you know not like just on the surface like but really you can claim that yes i do and for me, like I've tried to spend like those number of years uh, in, in whichever place, even if it was not at a continuous period of time, but just, you know, going in and out. And when I moved to Singapore, I did not really think I would stay beyond that because that was my thinking. And I said, oh, no, you know, this is it. Like four years, you learn, you meet people, you learn about culture and you move on and you you try to explore as much as possible out, outside of your, you know, holiday travels and all because mm -hmm. that's not enough time yes. to know. But I think what changed and maybe it's over the last couple of months and with this whole situation and you have more time to really, you know, think about things. I feel like, no, maybe it's it's time to not just keep moving like a crazy person. Probably at a certain point of time, you want to like just be in one place and just try to see, you know, how it works for you. And I, I never thought that this would be the country or the place for me to do that. I don't know if that's going to really be <laughs> true again in the long run, but I just feel like over the last uh, few months, I have changed my mindset about, you know, the whole move thing. I feel sometimes it's just good to like sink in, take that and also, you know, not, not 
think about too many things, like not too much. Uh, you can still like be in one place and learn, or it, it could possibly be a result of, yes, I have learned so many things that I'm trying to apply here and I've had that opportunity to do that. But I don't know. So that that is something that I have changed my thinking about to be like a little bit more patient about things and not be like very too excited about all the new things that are to come. But I'm still excited about things. And I'm um, a person who like just loves to, you know, learn about new things and still see, you know, what what is out there to explore. Mm -hmm. I can kind of relate to that. I also move through different countries. I always thought that it's because I'm moving forward with my life. It's like a step forward. But one of my friends gave me this idea that maybe I'm just running away from things. So I don't know. I still don't know <laughs> about it. But I really like Canada now that I'm here. And that's what I thought about Singapore as well when I first moved to Singapore. Like, I really like Singapore. Like This could be it. But, well... A few years later, well, I'm in Canada. <laughs> it's a lovely place, Singapore, it is, except it is. for the weather. Like yeah. it's just always hot, hotter, and gets worse. <laughs> and when it's humid, it's unbearable. So, but how how many years have you been in Canada? It's going to be two years now. Two years. Yes, okay. I moved here August 2018. So, okay, exactly two years now. And you have seasons there, right? <laughs> we do have seasons here. Yes, yes. We have a winter. Which we don't hear. I know. So I miss that. I well, you do have seasons, right? It's raining or not raining. <laughs> yeah. So well, the season changes every day, like probably twice a day <laughs> right. because it's raining. Oh, and yeah, it's yeah, hot yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I, I, miss, I miss seasons. Like in India, I love to, you know, every three months, there's a new season, three to four months. So that was good. What do you think is wrong with our industry? What is wrong with our industry? Well, I wouldn't say what, that there's anything wrong with the industry. Um, but I have, uh, I mean, not very related, but what I learned uh, lately is actually a good thing. You know, it's, I thought that uh, earlier people always had this uh, approach to um, maybe like it's a very closed community because it's a small, it's not like so wide as an industry, especially around this part of the world. And uh, most of the groups tend to work or stay within the group. So, you know, if you know that, okay, I've worked with this specific person or this company, um, as a vendor, I will always go to them because I'm more comfortable to them. And then most of the jobs that went out were concentrated there. People weren't very open to exploring newer options unless, you know, it was really necessary for them or they had issues with the current uh, process or people that they're working with, which is not a bad thing. And, you know, if it's working out, why change it if nothing is broken? But sometimes you just need to, you know, learn and see what's out there and what i experienced over the last couple of months and even more personally where you know a lot of people lost jobs with this situation and you know they were looking out and if if this was like the industry probably like one two three i don't know a few years ago that would be like uh everybody's running because they want like the best of the jobs and they're like oh this is there so i think i should go this because it's it works for me but what i saw over the last few months it's just so amazing because people were reaching out oh you know what i i know this contact and they have a job and i know you're looking for one it's it's the whole sharing and you know like really trying to be there that empathy was just phenomenal um even as part of lock lunch i mean the founder um jan he tried to reach out to all of us as ambassadors and he told us you know uh 
people are looking for jobs right now and I'm going to start collecting and, you know, create like some repository and share it with anybody who's looking. So if you know, you know, please reach out. If you know something, share it out, you know, send it to people, all your industry contacts, even people that you don't know, whatever it is, just post, even if it's not within your company. So try to help as much as possible. I don't think I have seen that before and it's not specific to the industry. I get it. It's happening everywhere, but I think for for localization, I have never seen that level of involvement to help somebody uh, across the board, you know, so and it was globally. So I thought that was something uh, which was a change. And it was it was a nice change to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it feels more like more like a community rather than yes. people just trying yes. to stab each other right for the right. job yeah <laughs> yeah there was no like purely business approach to this yeah. it was really about helping people yeah yeah um what is something people seem to misunderstand about you misunderstand about me hmm I don't really something <laughs> at the top of my head but I would say like a, a lot of times people uh especially here not exposed to uh india as a country you know because they say like okay you come from india they they have a certain perception and they feel like okay you're probably uh you know tied very closely to your culture to religion they bring a lot of aspects and they try to fit you in a box because of either the documentaries that they see on tv or they feel like indians are supposed to behave a certain way and dress a certain way and speak a certain way and um I think that's that's before meeting and but when you know after meeting me they're like oh are you from India which part of India are you from and they also have this like they've assumed I speak Tamil especially in Singapore I don't know why but it's not it's not the language or they say do you speak Hindu uh Hindu is not a language so I've heard a lot of strange things and they always like say oh you have to be behaving a certain way you have to have a certain diet these are things people assume um I but I don't think it's it's necessarily a bad thing I mean it it just helps them like open up a box of surprises like oh people do that in india oh that is how it is and yeah and and they also expect you to be i would say a bit shy you know the typical indian image they also expect you to um maybe like uh, I, I don't know how to put this not be very aggressive because that's not how they see uh you know an indian <laughs> woman and then when you go like oh my god you're like okay you're then <laughs> no i mean in some ways right or, or they don't feel that you can be really very assertive in right, uh, right. many places so yeah I, I i do get that but i don't know i mean maybe it's just around here because there is a huge indian population they've interacted with people which is like a different lifestyle or how they behave um and also they they feel that uh, i mean on a more personal and you know not from where I come or anything. I think uh, misunderstand people feel that I'm very, very reserved. Like I'm not a very open, outgoing person. And then maybe like after talking or meeting and then it's like, oh, okay, I thought, you know, you were a different person. And I get that a lot. I've got that at every place that I've worked at in Singapore. Most of the people that I've met with and they're like, oh, well, the first time I met you, I didn't really think, you know, it's going to, it was going to be like this or we would be meeting and talking like all this time. So you can share with them this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Before you meet well, me, please. listen to this. This is who I really am. Because that's my that was my first impression when we had our intro call that you were like very 
is it jolly the word like you know like very happy you know talk so i would never <laughs> say that you're reserved never i i think it all it also comes as you know sometimes um with with being in a role where you're always either one or two people it's not always a big team when it comes to linguistic quality so you you are not like always like uh, open about a lot of things and you start off at a new place you're very okay i need to gauge you know what is happening or what how i want to position things do i need to approach it in a certain way and i think it's yeah it's just because of that and also comes with you work with so many people and you're exposed to so many cultures you don't want to come off as offensive uh, and just go like hey hi how are you Ooh, i'm so and so in some yeah. in some cultures they don't like it yeah. right? they just want it to be like very quiet and i want to quickly go back to when you said that maybe people don't expect you to be assertive i think maybe we were even discussing this at some point together i was asking for your advice so my question is did you have to learn to be assertive? Was that not how you were before? Or was it always like that for you? Yeah, I wasn't really assertive to begin with. I think it just came as part of, you know, the learnings over the years and, um, you know, even a little bit of career progression. Because when you're young and you're starting out, you don't really think of, uh, you don't think of everything that you say. It's not calculated. But at the same time, you don't want to say something stupid and really impose your point because you don't want to come out as, oh, you know, this person is saying these things. So you're also protective of your image in a way. But as you grow and, you know, you, you learn more things, you're exposed to people, you meet more people, you learn about experiences, you realize it's okay to bring your point across. It's okay if you believe in it and you know that, you know, you can do something about it or, you know, it's the right thing. You are, it's okay to just share it and, you know, stand by what you say. So it, it did come as, uh, you know, something later on in life over experience, not not something as that was me as a person uh, is in, like, from the beginning. One of the things that I was struggling with and I'm still struggling with is sometimes I have the fear that when I say something, it will uh, come off negatively for the other people. So I'm pretty sure that you have probably also burned yourself a few times when you try to be assertive and it was not the right time or place to say certain things do you do you now try to always say whatever you think but try to say it in a nice neutral way or do you still think there are times when we shouldn't say something that's on our mind so yes it it did uh, happen and you know i do not always just like say whatever I want to, I, I will always process it before I do. Also, because, you know, I said, like, people misunderstand sometimes uh, since they don't expect that sudden shootout coming their way. And... Uh, <laughs> and that is why there is also uh, a need to be a little bit more sensitive. And in different different countries, different cultures, different personalities, people are going to take it a different way. So I try to say it. Yes, I do, uh, you know, think over it before I say it. I'm not necessarily that I always say everything, but I feel that yes, if I can tell that person something and or you know help the situation or it's gonna benefit something on a larger level, I would. But there are some times where I feel like it's best not to because you realize like it's not gonna help anybody and maybe that at that point of time it's not the best thing to say. But yeah, don't just like say that it's gone and throw it out because 
you can bring it up at a time where it's more appropriate and you know whoever you're sharing it with is in a better position to take that like not in a very heated discussion you don't want to be too assertive on a point that you think is not going to benefit either way and it's going to get tossed out but you know have more calmer discussion with somebody and say you know this is what i feel and because of all of these things maybe try to like build a background to it so lead your way into it and then say and that is why i think we should do it so before you say like you should you have some background to it that's going to help that person believe that yes this really is going to help so what would be your final words now is your moment to speak to the localization community outside of singapore (laughs) and outside of your lock lunch well i would say like I, i would just tell them that you know like it it's so wonderful to see the whole community spirit that came out over the last couple of months just keep it going like even after uh, the situation is better because it it brings that uh, connection and that is very important because at the end of the day it's a small industry we really uh, you know work with each other whether we know each other or not at some point of time we meet each other we share you know our experiences our learnings and I think it's important to be connected, like a very close-knit community, and also like keep sharing. I think it's it's so amazing that the things people have shared over the last couple of months because they've had the time to do that, which they did not. I think that's a good practice, and right. that's something I should actually also tell myself that I have to keep sharing the learning. So yeah, just keep learning and keep sharing. I think that helps everybody. Well, you did that right here, right? You shared a lot of your yeah. practices, your journey, your experience. <laughs> So I want to thank you very much for that, Sankashwari. Thank you for the lovely thank interview. Thank you for setting this up, Andre. It was really lovely to share all of this. <laughs> thank you very much and have a good day. Bye-bye. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye.